Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. Do you ever bemoan the holidays because of having to get together with family and the the tensions, the the family squabbles? Well, you haven't seen anything until you hear about Jesus's holidays. This week, we're going to see Jesus arriving in Jerusalem for three different holidays, and they are full of confrontations. So let's get started. This week, we are reading in the Daily Bible the dates of November the 5th through the 11th, or that's page numbers 1418 through 1449. And yes, this week, we read about Jesus going to Jerusalem for three different holidays. The first one is for the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the the Feast of Tabernacles is a, an eight-day gathering of the Jewish people every year. It's always in the fall. And it, uh, it's the time where they uh, commemorate and uh, remember God's provision for the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years and how that he tabernacled with them. And during this week, they live in temporary dwellings, little booths outside their homes where they can see the sky through the palm trees and be reminded of God's provision and his covering for them. But over the years, it also became known as an agricultural holiday. And so it really became a a celebration also of the, the harvest. And along with that is a thanksgiving to God for his provisions now that they're in the land. And of course, with that is always a prayer for rain for the coming year and for the coming crops. So this is the annual Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And it's very interesting that on the very last day of the feast, the there was a water libation ceremony carried on throughout the feast, but it kind of had a crescendo Uh, towards the end of the feast week, where the high priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam, which is down the hill from the temple, and they would take a golden water pitcher and they would take waters, living waters, out of the Pool of Siloam, which is fed by the Gihon Springs, and they would take these living waters all the way back up the hill to the temple, and they would pour it out over the altar, and they would do it as a signifying God providing rain for the crops, but also pouring out of his Holy Spirit upon the people. And it seems like it could have been at that very moment, because Jesus spoke up while they were at the Feast of Tabernacles. And we read about it in John 7, 37 through 38, and he says this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. By this he meant the Spirit. So in this context of the outpouring of the water on the altar as a a symbol of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, all who are thirsty come to me the source of living waters. On the last great day of the feast, 
Um, Jesus also, it seems that uh, he made another proclamation. Now, keep in mind, the during these three great feasts of Israel, they would have tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims come up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is just full and overrunning with people. They're camped out all around the city because there's not enough room in the city, in the houses and the rooms there for the people. And so on the great temple mount are all of these magnificent menorahs that are lit and they shine through, they light up the whole city of Jerusalem during these festivities. And so Jesus then proclaims in the midst of this, I am the light of the world. So um, now moving on then in John 8, it continues. It seems like it's a continuation. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles might be over or coming to an end, but he ends up in this debate and this confrontation. So he has declared to the people that he is the light of the world. And then um, he ends up in a very heated conversation with the rabbis. And um, and he tells them, you know, like, if, if you believed me, then um, you would know the truth and the truth would set you free. And the response is, but we're the descendants of Abraham. We're not slaves to anybody. And, um, and then so Jesus replies and says, if you were really Abraham's sons, you would do as Abraham did. And sort of saying, he believed in me. He, uh, he would believe me because he knows the Father and you don't. So then they say, what do you mean? We're not illegitimate sons. And at this point, you have to take a pause. Um, there may have been a real jab here at Jesus himself as an illegitimate son, the son of Mary who didn't have a father. Um, so they say, we're not illegitimate. And then he says to them, why, why is it you don't understand what I'm telling you? Because you belong to your father, the devil. So now it's like, you're not sons of Abraham. You're sons of the devil. He's the liar and the father of lies. And I'm telling you the truth. And if you knew the father, if you were a son of Abraham, you would know that and you would believe me and you would follow me. And he says, whoever belongs to God, hears God. The reason you don't hear me is that you do not belong to God. And whoever obeys my word will never see death. And at that, they didn't say he was illegitimate. They said, you are demon possessed. So this is how heated this argument becomes. And then Jesus uh, reasserts his eternity. He said, you know, if whoever obeys my word will not see death, and they just get all up in arms about. So then he goes on and he says, your father Abraham, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and he was glad in it. And then he says, before Abraham was even born, I am. Wow. That was a declaration of Jesus's eternal existence before Abraham and his ability to give eternal life to those who follow him. And so at this, they perceive this to be total blasphemy to say that I am was declaring his divinity. And so they took up stones to stone him. 
Now, now we enter into a part of the story that's really quite phenomenal. So what does Jesus do? Um, so he says to them, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he comes across this blind man. And so he spits into the mud. He creates mud. He puts it on the, the guy's eyes and he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, this is very interesting. The guy's blind. You're going to make him walk all the way from probably the temple down the hill through all the crowds, the marketplace to go to the this busy pool of Siloam and wash his eyes. Why would Jesus do that? I think the Bible doesn't tell us this. I think it was so that he, the crowds would see him walking through the city with mud on his eyes. They're like, what are you doing? Well, this man put mud on my eyes and told me to go wash. And they may have even started following him. But, but it was, I think it was for the crowds to see this. The man goes down, he stumbles down to the pool of Siloam, he washes, and he is healed. And the, the message is this, that after dealing with the blind Pharisees and those that argued with him, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and then he healed a blind man. Now, the Pharisees go and they question the man's parents. They don't want to get involved because they know they'll get kicked out of the synagogue. In other words, they'll be excommunicated from the, the people of Israel. They will be excommunicated from the people of Israel. And sure enough, after the Pharisees questioned the man who had been healed, he was excommunicated. He was kicked out of the synagogue. Now, isn't that amazing? Here's been this tremendous miracle. All of these people have seen this miracle. They've seen this man for years, blind. And instead of rejoicing over it and letting the man have his moment, they excommunicate him. They punish him because he was healed. So Jesus tells them, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who will become blind and those who see will become blind. So Jesus has brought this whole discourse to a climax that I've come to judge the world and I'm going to help the blind to see. But those who see the Pharisees, the, the leaders that are arguing with him, will become blind. So once again, it's the principle we talked about last week, that if you have ears to hear, if you really want to know, the Holy Spirit will open your ears, will open your heart, will open your eyes. But if you do not want to see, then you're going to be blinded to the truth. It's, it's spiritually discerned here. And so this is such an amazing interaction of Jesus here with the people. And it goes on. We're now into John chapter 10. All of this is a, a whole series of stories here in John 8 through 10. And Jesus tells them, I am the good shepherd. Well, first he tells them, I'm the gate to the sheep pen. I'm the way you get into the sheep pen. And then the sheep in the pen, if they are my sheep, they know my voice and they'll follow me. They'll follow me out of the sheep pen because they know my voice. But if you don't 
understand me if you don't know my voice and you're not of my sheep. But then he goes on here and in verse 16, I wanted to bring this out because he's talking about you and me. And Jesus says this, you know, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. And then he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen and I must bring them also. So Jesus is, first of all, getting his voice out to the Jewish people. Who hears his voice? Who receives it into their heart? Who sees and has their eyes opened by the Spirit? They're his sheep. They know his voice. They know he's revealing the Father to them. And so they will follow him. But then he says, I've got other sheep outside of this sheep pen. And that's where you and I come in. We're out in the nations. We're Gentiles. And he's going to come after us. And if we'll recognize his voice, if we will have our eyes, our spiritual eyes open like the blind man, then we will hear his voice and follow him and become part of his sheepfold. Then another story we read is the story of the Good Samaritan. And um, I want to bring this out because, as you know, I often allude to the fact that some uh, New Testament preachers try to portray that what Jesus came and brought was just so new and different. And so therefore, it just made the whole Old Testament, the old covenants, everything completely irrelevant. You don't even have to read them. You don't have to worry about them um, because what Jesus brought was totally new. And I just want to bring this out here in the story here of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is talking to an expert in the law. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus tell him? Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? He knows the man's an expert in the law. So he asks, so what's written in the law? And the man quotes back to him exactly what we attribute to Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, and so it is. I mean, he, he agreed with the man. The man is quoting the Old Testament law. That is the golden rule. That is what Jesus brought. It wasn't so new. It was just a clarification, a bringing out the heart of the law through these verses. But then the man responds, and his response is so Jewish. I love it. What does he say? Okay, who is my neighbor? So, and this is what I like to explain to us Gentile Christians out in the nations, that the, the Jews would ask, okay, how do I do it? What's the definition of neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus went into the parable of the Good Samaritan in order to answer that. But I think so often we don't ask enough questions. And, um, and it's because the Jews asked the questions. They wanted to understand the detail. They wanted to know the practical application of this law, of this verse. And so they would dig and dig until they got that. That's what the rabbis did for centuries. And that's why the law developed and developed and developed. And we ended up with such restrictive rabbinic laws obeyed today by the ultra-Orthodox community. They seem excessive, but that's because of this very 
a propensity within the Jewish mind of asking exactly how do I do it then? How do you define neighbor? And, and so the rabbis would dig in and figure out how to define neighbor. Here, Jesus defines it, of course, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So now let's keep moving. Um, our second holiday this uh, week that we're reading about is Hanukkah. And Jesus comes back to Jerusalem for the festival of dedication. We read about it in John chapter 10. So Hanukkah is the celebration of what had just happened about 150 years earlier when the Maccabean revolt defeated the Greek Seleucid forces led by Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and they had seized control of the temple and they rededicated it to the God of Israel. Now, I want to put this in context. Abraham is almost 2,000 years before Jesus. Um, David, the kingdom of David, is a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And um, the wandering in the wilderness would have been like 1,400 years earlier than Jesus. So we're talking about the celebration of the Passover was of a holiday that was like 1,400 years earlier. The celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles was about the wilderness wanderings, which was about 1,400 years earlier. But the Feast of Hanukkah had only happened 150 years before. So it was a very fresh holiday, and it was a celebration of a revolt against the pagan Greek forces who had set up an idol in the temple, and they had cleansed the temple, rededicated it to the God of Israel, and it actually had uh, launched a hundred-year reign of Jewish sovereignty in the land. So this is a great celebration. So what does this mean? This means that the Jewish people in Jerusalem, celebrating the Feast of Dedication, which today we call it Hanukkah, that they are looking for the one who will lead their revolt against the godless pagan Roman Empire that is oppressing them, brutalizing them, and taxing them. You get it? So Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, and what do they ask him? Are you the one? Are you the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ? They want to know, because if he is, it's time now, let's revolt. And Jesus says, I've already told you, and I've been demonstrating it all along with all these miracles. And then he says, I and the Father are one. And this was taken as blasphemy by the leaders and so they took up stones and tried to stone Jesus. So it didn't go so well. But Jesus wasn't wanting to lead a revolt against Rome. You get it? Um, but he was revealing who he was for those who had ears to hear and those who had eyes to see. So Jesus has to leave Jerusalem and leave the area entirely. So Jesus is ministering now outside of the area in a region called Perea. And he gets word that his friend Lazarus has died in uh, Bethany. And so he goes to Bethany. And we all know the story. We've heard it so many times in our life that Jesus goes to the grave and he weeps over Lazarus. And then he calls him out of his grave. And Lazarus comes out 
uh, wrapped in the, the grave clothes, and um, he's been raised from the dead. Well, there's two things that I want to mention here. One is that uh, later in life, after Jesus's ascension to heaven and the scattering of the apostles, um, legend has it or tradition that Lazarus had to flee uh, Judea like they all did, and he ended up in Cyprus. And he lived there for like another 30 years. And so when you go to Cyprus, there is a church there built over what they believe to be the tomb of Lazarus. And um, Lazarus, uh, I think it says something like uh, the only person to die a second time or uh, Lazarus's second tomb is there in Cyprus. But it's a pretty strong tradition because um, they believe that that the the location of the tomb was lost after the Arab Muslim invasion in the 7th century AD. And uh, then two centuries later, it was uncovered. They found a tomb and on it, it said, Lazarus, four days dead, friend of Christ. And so the remains that were in that tomb were taken to Constantinople, which was the headquarters of the Eastern Church at the time. And uh, so I don't know where they are today, but it's a strong tradition about Lazarus that he did die again later on uh, there in Cyprus. The second thing I want to point out is what the uh, resurrection of Lazarus from the dead did, that it actually resulted the Sanhedrin decided now that they needed to kill Jesus. Because why? The crowds. The word was spreading rapidly that Jesus, this Jesus from Nazareth, had raised this man Lazarus from the dead. And so it, it's becoming a real movement, a real flurry, flurry of interest in this Jesus. And the Sanhedrin realizes they have a problem on their hands. And we have to understand the context of that problem, living under Roman oppression. And the role of the Sanhedrin was to be a kind of self-government for the Jewish people, but a body that reported to Rome. Uh, the high priest was head of the Sanhedrin. He reported to Rome. Rome actually appointed the high priest. And um, this is why the Essene movement didn't want to have anything to do with the priest of the temple because it was a political appointment now. It was no longer a position of holiness. And it had been corrupted politically. So uh, the Sanhedrin was trying to keep down any kind of revolt or rebellion against Rome. Um, and so they said, it's time to get rid of this man. And the high priest actually said, so what if one man dies on behalf of the nation? Meaning, if they don't kill the one man, Rome will wipe them all out. It will lead to disaster. And of course, they ended up killing the one man. Then later on, Rome came in anyway and wiped out the nation. Uh, but that's what was going on here. Uh, the second thing that's very interesting is not only did they plot to kill Jesus, they plotted to kill Lazarus because so many Jews were now believing about this miracle. So once again, Jesus has to get out of the area. He goes to the area called Ephraim. Now, but the third holiday is approaching, and it's Passover.
Jesus begins to make his way to Jerusalem. Now, everybody is looking for Jesus in Jerusalem because the pilgrims are beginning to enter the city. Um, I think there were over 100,000 pilgrims that would come into the city during the holidays. And they're looking around. Where is he? Is he here? Is he coming? And there is an arrest warrant out that anyone that should see this Jesus to let them know because they are going to arrest him. And Jesus knows this, but Jesus comes to Bethany anyway to his good friends of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and he has a dinner there. And then the next day uh, begins the triumphant entry into Jerusalem where uh, Jesus rides on a lowly colt and enters the city and the people are taking up palm branches and they're quoting that famous psalm. We talked about it uh, back when we um, back talked about the Psalms uh, of Ascent and the Hallel, the great Hallel. Uh, the Psalm 118 is a part of these psalms that were sung at all the different uh, festivals, Jewish festivals. Psalm 18 was one, and it says, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people said, blessed is the king of Israel. This is in John 12, 13. So they are proclaiming Jesus as king, and there are thousands of people out welcoming him to the city. Now we're going to read more about this Passover week uh, next week. What I want to do is stop here in our story and make a few observations before we close. Number one, Jesus was an observant Jew who went to Jerusalem for the holidays. Now, it was forgivable you didn't if you didn't make it to every single one, but we have here enough stories to see he made the effort to go there to many of them. Secondly, while there in Jerusalem, he was in close proximity to the Sanhedrin, to the chief priests, to the elders, and the leading rabbis. Of course, out in the country, there's rabbis everywhere. They're local rabbis. But here, you're talking about the leadership, the national leadership and the religious leadership. So he's rubbing elbows with them. There's a lot of interaction, and that's why there's so many confrontations during this place. The chief priests, the elders, the rabbis, they're questioning Jesus's authority. So Jesus responded with what? out of Psalm 118. And this is a really clever little response. He says, have you ever read in the scriptures? Now, get the sarcasm here. These are experts of the law. These are the chief priests, the elders. They not only read the scriptures, they memorize the scriptures. So to say, have you read in the scriptures? Where it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I want to bring this out to you because some people read this section of Scripture and they interpret it that Jesus is condemning the Jewish faith. He's condemning the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. He's saying the Jewish people have rejected me. And I want us to put this in context because a few verses later, it says that they knew, the leaders, the chief priests, the rabbis, the elders knew he was talking about them. This was not against the nation as a whole, the people as a whole. This was 
against the leadership that was rejecting him and was looking for a way to arrest him. Why? Because they were afraid of the crowds. And this leads me to my third point. While Jesus is in Jerusalem for these holidays, it became dangerous for him because there were so many Jews who did believe in him. And, you know, we often hear the generalization that the Jewish people rejected Jesus. Well, that's not really accurate. There were more Jewish people that accepted Jesus and believed him and followed him than there were that outright rejected him and had him crucified. It was the top leadership that rejected him. And they had selfish motives. They had political motives. They, you know, they they were self-preservation, whatever their motives were. It was a combination of things. And um, they had to put this down. They had to make sure the people did not proclaim somebody as king and that Rome would come in and stomp on all of them. So you have all these thousands of people hailing Jesus as king as he enters the city. And then when Jesus entered Jerusalem, Matthew uh, 21.10 said the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? In John 12, 19, the Pharisees said, look how the whole world has gone after him. Mark 11 and 18, the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And Luke 19, 48, they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So I want us to get the right context here. Many thousands of Jewish people did believe Jesus and were proclaiming him as king, but that was the problem. And that's why the few, the leaders, felt that they needed to step in. And the fourth point that I want to end with uh, today is about Jesus's heart for his people. And we read that in two different uh, sections that we're reading uh, this week. So I want to read to you Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He said, if only you had recognized what would bring you peace, but instead you're blinded, your eyes are blinded. And then he begins to predict the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that will come. We're going to talk about that more next week. But this is Jesus's heart for his people. He wept over them. And we also read in uh uh, another scripture here where he laments over Jerusalem 
And he is, it's in Luke 13, 34 through 35. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I will tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is Jesus saying here? He saying the people had already proclaimed, Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So he's not speaking against the whole nation as a whole. He is speaking here to the leaders of Jerusalem, and he's saying, if only you had recognized, I, as much as I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you were not willing, and look, your house has left you desolate. Is he talking about the house? What house? Well, the temple is going to be desolate, um, but he's telling them, I tell you, you, speaking to a Jewish Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is saying prophetically here, I'm not coming back until you welcome me as king and you say, Baruch HaBab Adonai, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come. King of Israel. One day this is going to happen, and this is when Jesus returns to Jerusalem. So with that, I'm going to close today. Enjoy this week's reading. Our resources I want to point you to for today. We have two DVDs written in stone. The first one is called Jesus of Nazareth. The second one is called The Secrets of the Temple. You will love them as you're reading through these stories. I really encourage you to get these two DVDs. They're very low cost, and you can visualize where so many of these events took place. Enjoy your reading this week. We'll be back here next week. Till then, God bless. If this is the first time you've listened to the Out of Zion podcast in our Walk Through the Bible series, you'd like to join us, please download our New Testament reading guide so that you can be reading along with us each week as we are walking through the pages of the New Testament. Go to outofzionshow.com and request your New Testament reading guide. Do it today, and we'll see you back here next week. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.